just, just so you know, they're not all my kids who sit on this row. I was looking at that today. I was like, there's like eight kids here, nine kids. Someone's going to think they're all mine. They're good kids, but no, they're not all mine. Uh, we're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. So please go ahead and have your Bibles there. The title today is The Gospel of, Gra- Gospel of Grace Sets Us Free in Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to see that because we've been set free by the gospel, we must stand firm in the gospel. And that's going to be our main point that we're going to make today. Um, As Christians, there is a fallacy that we can teach if we're not careful. The fallacy is that we can emphasize moral change without gospel transformation. What I mean is that we can encourage people to live really good, morally upright lives, but not actually believe in Jesus. Now, the reason that this is so dangerous is because good, moral people often do not see their need for Jesus. In fact, they, far easy, they much more readily see the sin in others than they see the sin in their own life. And because of this, they don't need a Redeemer. They don't need a savior. They don't need someone to die on the cross for them. They need a cheerleader. They need, they need someone to give them a pep talk. They need someone to encourage them. They need someone to give them that little boost when they're just not feeling good that day. But as parents, we can, and as parents, we can easily teach our children this fallacy. We, we can emphasize rules and morals so much that we actually forget to really talk about Jesus and how only through Jesus are we actually able to live upright lives. But not only as parents can we potentially teach our children, but we ourselves can fall into this type of thinking and false teaching. And this is what's happening with the Galatians. Galatians is a church of believers who know the gospel, but have slowly begun to believe in a false gospel. They're being tempted to believe that Jesus helps them with their salvation, but they still must do good works. They must follow the law and be circumcised if they're truly to be saved. It's kind of like they do their part, God does their part, together they have salvation, which goes against the entire gospel of grace which we see in the Bible. And so today, Paul's going to give really the final theological argument against this works-based gospel. In chapters 1 and 2, he's primarily defended his apostleship, if you remember that. They had denied that he was an apostle, and if Paul's not really an apostle, then his message is false. And so in chapters 1 and 2, Paul primarily defends his apostleship, proving his apostleship is the very same as that of Peter and John and others. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he gives the theological defense of the gospel on how it is all by grace, through faith in Jesus, and not by works. And now we're coming to the final argument that he's going to give. This might be the the conclusion, the death knell to it, that cumulatively speaking, Taking his arguments from chapters 1 all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul would say, if you understand this, you will realize why a works-based gospel is so incredibly false. And so I encourage you, we've been working our way through Galatians, go back this week and read 1 1 through 4. Remember that flow that comes in there. Understand the train of thought that Paul is making. Go back through your notes and see how Paul is proving from Scripture 
that the gospel comes to us by grace and not through works. And so I encourage you, uh, go ahead and stand as we read chapter 4, verse 21, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. In fact, we're going to read even verse 1 of chapter 5. And here at Timberline, we stand when we read. We do so because we believe God's word comes from God. It's breathed out by God. So we do stand in order to honor our Heavenly Father. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you, brothers... Like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, Father, give us wisdom today. God, this is a, a difficult text. It's a complicated text. Give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see the truth that is here. God, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Your word is good, it is righteous, it is holy. And Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, I pray that those who are believers here would be greatly encouraged to stand firm in the gospel of grace that they've been given and they've been set free by. May they stand firm, may they love this gospel. And God, if there are those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray God, you would give them eyes to see this gospel, that you would help them love this gospel today, and that, God, they would see the futility of trusting in works and the beauty and the joy and the freedom of trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this time. Be with us now as we read your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So this is one of those texts Perhaps you've read before and you're just like, this is weird. And you just kind of keep going because I will say, if you, if you go through it slowly and you write things out, you understand it pretty easily. Um, but if you, if you don't write it out, if you don't go through slowly, it's a little complicated. But we're going to walk through this. Verse 21, Paul basically says, do you know what the law says? Paul's challenging the Galatians. Have you listened to the message of the law? And I just want you to think, do you know what the law says? Do you know what the law says? Do you know the message of the world? Do you know that constantly every single day we're being bombarded with false messages, with false gospels, promising us life but actually never giving us life? Are you listening to the world? 
you know what's out there? Do you know the message of the law that's out there? And so Paul's going to tell them what the law says. He's going to tell us today also. He's going to do it in a little bit of an interesting way. Now before we do that, I want to give a plausible argument that the Judaizers may have given. I don't know if they gave, them, gave this argument, but I think it's pretty plausible. And, um, and so here we go. Uh, the Judaizers who have come to Galatia saying, you guys need to follow the law, you need to be circumcised, they may have said something like this. You guys remember Abraham? And the church would, of course, said, they would have coughed, and they would have said, yes, of course we do. Of course we remember Abraham. And the Judaizers would say, well, Abraham was the father of our faith. It's through him God spoke, and, and God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to bless you and make you a great blessing to all nations. And the people would be like, yes, yes, we understand this. And then God says in chapter 15, I, I want to give you, um, or he says earlier, I want to give you a, um, a, a child and through whom these offsprings will come about. But the problem is, Abram doesn't have a child, right? He has no son for whom all these promises are going to go through. In chapter 15, God promises that he will give him a son. But God doesn't work as quickly as Abraham would have liked and sometimes doesn't work as quickly as we would have liked. And so Abraham takes things into his own hands and he takes Hagar, who is a slave, and he has a child with her and the child is named Ishmael. And so this child came about by Abraham not trusting in God and that's how we have Ishmael. But then God says, no, that, that's not how I'm working. This is all by my grace, not by your effort. I'm going to give you a child. And so when Sarah's 90 and Abraham's 100, he gives them Isaac. Isaac is of the promise. And from Isaac, we have Jacob. From Jacob, we have 12 sons. From the 12 sons, we really have the birth of Israel, who goes into Egypt, which Moses comes and leads out of Egypt, that they would have the law. This is why we emphasize the law, because through the promise, we now have the law. That's the people of God. The people who are not of God are like Ishmael who are produced by works and therefore they don't follow the law. Galatians, don't you understand why we need to follow the law? Because we want to be like the people of promise. Like Isaac and Jacob and Israel. So that may be a very plausible argument that the Judaizers would have given and maybe quite convincing and maybe even convincing to you as you're here. Like, well, that sounds actually pretty good. Makes sense. Um, but now Paul's going to give a different side of the story. He wants us to give us the correct understanding. And Paul is going to show us how we are to read our Bibles. We're to read our Bibles. We're to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You understand that? We don't read the Old Testament as if the New Testament hasn't happened, but we now read the Old Testament. We understand the historical context that's there, but we read it in light of what Jesus has done. And, and let me tell you why we do this. Let me do this by, by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. Um, so listen to what this says. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, talking about Jews reading the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, 
to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If we read the Old Testament apart from Jesus, apart from what God is doing, then we do not understand it. But when we read it through Jesus Christ, that veil is lifted that we would understand the gospel. We'd understand what God is doing and how it all leads to Jesus. That's how we are to read our Bibles. That's why we pray before we preach. We pray, God, help us to understand. Give us faith to understand. That's why when you're reading the Bible at home, I encourage you always pray before. God, give me understanding. May your spirit help me as I read and understand your word and better know the gospel. That's why when we share the gospel with other people, always be praying God, help them to see this truth. Help them to love this truth. Because that's why the difference between if we preach the gospel and some people are saved and some people aren't, some people are hearing it through faith by the Spirit and some people are not. So we're always praying that people would have faith in God, that they would properly understand the Scripture. So Paul's now going to properly give us what the Old Testament says through the lens of the gospel. So Paul's argument, we begin in verse 22. Paul states, Abraham had two sons, one from a slave woman, Hagar, the other from his wife, Sarah, the free woman. In verse 23, he clarifies, how were these sons born? The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now the word flesh, Paul uses that to emphasize that Ishmael was born because of Abraham's effort, not God's grace. Okay, that's, that's the point of using the word flesh there. Abraham was operating under the principle, God helps those who help themselves. You ever hear that? You ever use that? Don't use that. Because what does that say? Well, it, if you clean yourself up, if you do your part, then God will come help you. So why don't you just do a little bit of the law, maybe do some circumcision, maybe do these things, and then God will help finish that puzzle and you can be saved. That's, that's a gospel of works right there that god only helps those who help themselves but rather we have a god who helps those who can't help themselves right we have a god who helps those who are dead and dying in their sins and he comes and makes us alive so don't don't use that line or that train of thinking that's what abraham did and when we do that we're not honoring god we're not glorifying god we're actually rejecting his grace which is what abram did at that moment when he says i will take hagar and i will i will make a child through her so that then god's promise can come through and so paul uses the word flesh to emphasize works and effort and and to prove that if you go back to chapter 3 verse 3 paul says having begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh he's He's contrasting begun by the Spirit, which is clearly an act of grace through faith, and or were you being perfected, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So your efforts or by God's grace. So he uses the word flesh to refer to human effort apart from God's grace. And then in the rest of verse 23, Paul contrasts the son born according to the flesh with the son of the free woman who was born of the promise. So he's saying Ishmael was born through works, through human effort. Isaac was born simply by the grace and providence of God. So far, so good. The Judaizers would be going, yep, that's what we said. Amen. I mean, Paul, at least he got this part right. That's what they'd be thinking. And then comes verse 24. In verse 24, things turn and get a little tricky. 
Um, Paul's now going to give us the true meaning, and he says this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, allegory is a story in which people, places, and events stand for deeper spiritual truths, okay? A good example of this, here's my little push, or I don't think push is the right word, um, the bookstore, what's that? I'm Plug, there you go, my plug for the bookstore. See, John, I need you, man, you can't leave. Um, we have a book called Pilgrim's Progress in uh, the bookstore right out there, and it's a fictitious book, um, but it's an allegory. And in this story, Christian meets someone named Faithful and Hopeful, and he goes to places like Doubting Castle and Hill of Difficulty. It's an allegory standing for deeper spiritual truth. I encourage you, read that book. It is a classic and is an amazing, amazing book. What Paul does here is not quite like what you read in Pilgrim's Progress and what maybe is done in typical normal day allegory today. Paul is not taking fictitious events or fictitious people, which is normally what allegory is. He's taking real historical events and historical people and showing the greater gospel truths behind them. So analogy might be a little bit better word, or I think Tim Keller used the word, he's more just speaking figuratively at this moment. Um, and just a word of caution, Paul doesn't do this a whole lot. Okay, so what we're about to read, it is kind of tricky. Paul doesn't do this a lot, maybe two, three times um, in the entire New Testament. Um, so just because we see this doesn't mean, oh, this is now how we start interpreting Scripture. Um, this might not be the normal way for us to do this. And so if you have more questions about that, you can come see me afterwards and we can talk a little about that. But Paul says, these two women, Sarah, Hagar, they represent two covenants. And so let's approach them one at a time because that's what Paul does. And we'll look at the first covenant. Now, the first one he gives is going to be about Hagar. So he's not giving a chronological order necessarily, but he's simply telling them in the way that he wants us to understand them. Verse 24, we read, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. So one of these covenants is Mount Sinai. So what do we think when we think Mount Sinai? Law, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses takes Israel to Mount Sinai. That's where God gives them the law. So he says, this is where, this is Mount Sinai. And then he says, Mount Sinai bears children. Now the Judaizers would say, yes, Mount Sinai bears children for the promise. That's why we keep the law. But what does Paul say? She cor or he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul says, Mount Sinai, the law, Hagar, all slavery. All slavery. He has turned the Judaizer argument upside down. The Judaizers say, no, no, the people of promise come through the law. And Paul says, no, no. If you're trusting in the law, and you're like Hagar, and like Ishmael, and you're slaves. This is like, this is like a gut punch the air has been removed from the room. Everyone's just kind of standing there. The Judaizers would just have their mouths gaping open. Even the Galatians, I feel like, would be kind of like, wow, this, we're going to see this coming. 2015 Super Bowl, it's a sad day. Sad day. Um, Russell Wilson, are at the goal line, instead of handing the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, who would power through and we know would have got the touchdown, and the Seahawks would have won two, two Super Bowls in a row. <sighs> Instead, he threw the ball. 
and there was an interception by the Patriots. And we were at actually Bill Baker's house at that moment. There was, I don't know, like 20 of us there. And there's energy, there's excitement, and we're like, yes, yes, yes. And then you could have heard a pin drop in that room as we're all just, our mouths, we couldn't believe what happened. We totally could not believe that we just lost the game. The, the Patriots knew they lost. They knew that Russell Wilson and Marshawn Lynch were going to power this ball. They knew they were going to lose. And then out of nowhere, this interception comes, and we're just like, I mean, it was like five minutes, we're just sitting there, just like staring into like nowhere. Um, that's kind of what's happened here. Out of nowhere, Paul says, no, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, is Hagar, is Ishmael, is slavery. Now, that might hit you a little hard, too. Many people today often believe that the Jews are God's people as if, um, and believe that the Jews are already saved or have a better chance of being saved than non-Jews. But what does this text tell us? This text clearly tells us having a bloodline connected to Abraham or following the Old Testament law does nothing for your salvation. In fact, it may lead you away from God like the Pharisees and the Judaizers. Romans 9, 6 says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, just because your blood related to Abraham does not mean you get a free pass to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, following the Old Testament law apart from faith in Jesus will lead you farther away from Jesus. And, and that's, remember the fallacy we talked about in the beginning? We can emphasize moral transformation apart from gospel transformation. And when we do that, we produce Pharisees, we produce Judaizers, we, pro we produce people who need a cheerleader and not a redeemer and not a savior. And that's what the Judaizers needed, that's what the Pharisees wanted. And if you're here today and you're thinking, man, I'm a really good person, I have a really good shot at getting into heaven, look at all the things I do, then that's how you're viewing Jesus also today. And so now Paul says, now let's look at the next covenant. It's the first one. And so you can just imagine the Galatians are kind of shocked. The Judaizers are floored at this moment. So verse 26, we read, the Jerusalem above is free and is our mother. So there's the Jerusalem of earth with his Mount Sinai, Arabia, Hagar, and slavery. The Jerusalem above in heaven is the real mother. So who is the Jerusalem above? What is Paul doing here? Well, in Revelation, John, the Apostle John, also speaks about the Jerusalem from above. Remember, the Jerusalem above is actually coming down out of heaven onto earth. And we read that the new Jerusalem is the people of God. It is the church. It is the bride of Jesus. So both John and Paul are referring to the heavenly Jerusalem as the church, as the true people of God. The church does not correspond to what is of earth, but to where Jesus is in heaven. So what Paul is saying is that one does not become part of God's family because they're blood related to Abraham or because they keep Old Testament law, but they become part of God's family by faith in Jesus, by trusting in the promise of God. And then, in verse 27, Paul's going to quote from Isaiah 54. Now let me tell you, when, when New Testament writers quote Old Testament texts, what you want to do is go back and read all of chapter 53, all of 54, all of 55. You want to try to understand what's happening here. You want to, why are they using this text? How does it 
how does it move the argument forward? What's the purpose here? And at times, it's easy, and at times, it's kind of hard. This is where maybe a good commentary or some additional books are, are sometimes helpful. Um, so let's, let's look back at this. Isaiah 54, verse 1, which is quoted here in Galatians 4, 27. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So in chapter 53, does everyone remember the famous 53? That's where we have the suffering servant who comes and takes the sins of the people of God and dies for them, that the people would be made free. That's Isaiah 53, prophesying about Jesus coming and dying on the cross for us, that we would have free. So at the very end of 53, where we have this amazing look towards the gospel, look towards Jesus, that one day all of our sins will be atoned for, then we have, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor. So, so who is this barren desolate woman it's israel it's israel who's now going to be in captivity because they've rejected god they've rejected his covenants and so god has sent them into babylon into assyria and they've been captured and it appears that they're desolate and it appears that they're barren and it appears that they have absolutely no hope at all but we have isaiah 53 right isaiah 53 you have the gospel one comes and dies on behalf of the people and because he dies the barren woman will give birth the woman will give birth and she will have more children than the one with the husband so there's this hope that's given where does paul see this hope being fulfilled in the Galatians coming to know Jesus. In Gentiles today coming to know Jesus. And anyone who trusts that in Jesus we are set free from the law and that we now are made part of the family of God. Proof of that is verse 28. You brothers like Isaac are children of promise. That's, this is point. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So I just want you to think about what this means. We have an amazing gospel of grace. God does not just save the smart, the intelligent, the good-looking, the ones who are born in certain neighborhoods or, or have so much money. He doesn't, he doesn't say you need to meet these qualifications in order to be saved, but what we see is that the weak, the blind, the poor, the handicapped, the barren woman, the short, the tall, the awkward-looking ones, they're not disqualified from receiving God's grace. Do you see that? Amen. It's good news. Yeah, it's amen. Thank you, Roger. See, a gospel of work says you need to qualify in order to be saved. But the gospel of grace says you don't stand a chance of being qualified, so I send my son Jesus, and he qualifies you in his death and resurrection, that you would be saved, all who have faith in him. Listen, it does not matter what you've done in the past. It does not matter what's been done to you. None of that has to keep you from coming to know Jesus. That does not have to be what defines you. 
In Christ, there is freedom. In Christ, there is hope. That's the whole point. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to have Old Testament law. You don't have to be related to Abraham by blood. It's do you have faith in Jesus? And all who have faith are set free that they would be saved and made part of God's family. So to summarize Paul's argument, the law produces slaves like Ishmael. So anyone who uh, works um, in order to, to achieve their salvation, or, or as we work to think that, man, I, I can better myself, I, I can one-up other people, I can prove why I'm acceptable. Those who, those who rely upon the law are, are, are in a slavery, because the law never says, congratulations, you made it. It simply says, do more, do better. It's like the Pharisees. This is like the Judaizers. You never reach the finish line when it comes to the law. You're enslaved to running, running, always running to anxiety. Have I done enough? Nope. Keep going. Have I done enough? Nope. Keep going. And you will worry yourself straight to death because you will never have any assurance if you trust in yourself. But the gospel produces children who are free. The gospel says in Jesus you are saved. You are made righteous. The gospel says it is finished isn't that good news we don't have to try to earn we don't have to try to work because jesus has done it and who is a part who are the free people it's the church it's those who trust in jesus for their salvation now paul doesn't leave it here though he wants us to now know what do we do that we've been set free so this is what paul is going to do and i want you to understand this is what paul always does he always goes from rich theology to rich application uh, romans chapters 1 through 11 rich theology chapters 12 through 16 rich application ephesians 1 2 and 3 rich amazing theology 4 5 and 6 rich application galatians 1 2 3 4 rich theology 5 and 6 rich application listen theology transforms the way we live do not think that um, theology or studying the word deeply is only for certain Christians. If you want to know how to live for God, we must be theologians. Every single one of us. You, me, even our children. Everyone who calls themselves a Christian is to be a theologian. Because only theologians know how to live for God, right? People who study God, his word, the gospel, then know how to live for God's glory. So Paul always does this. He wants us to understand, here's the rich truth, and this is how it's played out in everyday life. And so what is the application that he really wants us to know? We see it in chapter 5, and it's stand firm in your gospel-bought freedom. That's the point. Stand firm in your gospel-bought freedom. Paul says it like this in verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Here's the application. Stand firm, you're free. Stand firm. You are free. Do you know that? You're free. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are free. Do you know that? You're free. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are free. Stand in that. Amen. Stand in it. You're free. You're not enslaved to the law. You're not enslaved to, to working and earning or proving who you are. You're freed from all of that that you'd be satisfied in Jesus. You're free. Do you know that? You're free. 
That's the gospel. This is literally the gospel right here in a very brief, compact form. For freedom, Christ has set us free. How did he set us free? He went to the cross and died that he would take all of our sins, all of our punishment, and make us new. Giving us his spirit that we live by faith and trusting in him. You're free. Do you know that? Like, isn't that good news? You're free if you've trusted in Jesus. You're not a slave. Stand firm. You're free. John Piper wrote a book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. You want to know what one of those reasons are? Set you free. Set you free. There's 49 other really good reasons, and there's many more than that. You should buy that book. We'll probably put it at the bookstore eventually. One thing Paul does here, he's shown that all people apart from faith in Jesus, they're slaves. We're born as slaves. That's how you and I are born. Anyone who does not have faith in Jesus, they're slaves. They're slaves to the law, slaves to proving proving ourselves, slaves to wanting our own glory to be made known. You see this in the, well, why should I get promoted? Because I've done this, because I've done this. Why do I deserve more than that person? Because this is who I am. We all want people to recognize our glory. That's why we get promotions. That's why we should be treated better. That's why people should respect us. That's why I should get more pity. That's why I should get more accolades. Whatever it is, it's because you need to recognize my glory. And we're slaves to that. Ever since Adam and Eve, Christ sets us free. By going to the cross, that he would die, taking the law, taking, taking all of our sins, and paying the penalty of it, perfectly fulfilling the law, so that now we could stand firm in the gospel, free. Not trying to make much of our glory, because we've been set free from that, to live as we've been originally created. How were we originally created? Go back to the Garden of Eden. We're made in the image of God to do what? Make much of His glory. We're free. We're free from the bondage of tirelessly, endlessly, anxiously trying to make much of ourselves, but never being satisfied to being free. That now we can make much of God. But that's why we've been created. And so we're to stand firm. How do we stand firm? That's a good question then, right? Paul says, stand firm. Okay, I want to do that, Paul. How? Well, I got three points. I think there's some sub-points here too. But we'll make our way off. I think there's like seven points then. I don't even know. I didn't count. We'll see. We'll see. You guys can count. Uh, But the big one, or the first big one, is know the Bible. And I think if, if you're here at Timberline, you've been here more than like three weeks. You know almost my application every week is, is kind of know the Bible. Um, but I think there's pretty good reasons for that. Um, Paul has defended the gospel throughout this letter. And, and if we just look at chapters 3 and 4, he has quoted the Old Testament numerous times. He uses the Old Testament to defend the gospel of grace repeatedly. Chapter 3, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 16, all Old Testament quotations. And in chapter 4, the entire argument of Hagar-Sayer relationship is all based upon the Old Testament. Everything Paul does is based upon knowing the Old Testament. So we need to know our Bibles. And as we go into this application, um, I want to kind of just 
gear it a little bit towards fathers because it's Father's Day. So wives, you can be like, oh, that's great. Um, but don't worry, it's applicable to all of us. So whether you're a husband, a, um, whether you're a man, a woman, a child, it doesn't really matter. It's applicable, but I want to gear it towards fathers. So men, you will serve your family best by, by growing in your knowledge of God's word. As you grow in knowledge and love for God through his word, you will be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. Go to your kids' baseball games. Go to your kids' track meets. Um, eat pizza with them. Uh, stay up late. Watch movies with them. All good things. Those are fun things. But if you really want to serve your family, if you want to shepherd your family, if you want to lead your family, know the word of God. It's through the word that the Spirit gave you faith. That's what we read in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing through the word of God. Um, and it's through the word you will continue to grow in that understanding of who God is and what he has done for you. It's as you know the word, you will see the deceptive nature of this world more and more. Do you know that? It's as you immerse yourself in the truth of the word, you will see the lies in the world. It's like um, bank tellers. How do they know what false, uh, what, what false currency looks like? They hold real currency all the time. All the time. They don't need to study false currency. They look at the real currency, and they know it so well that when anything comes that looks different, oh, this is false, clearly. And that's how we are to be. I want to encourage you, men, know the word. There's nothing more important every day than waking up and reading the Bible. And I encourage you to get up early and read the Bible. Do that before you do anything else. And one of the, the hardest things for me to hear is when men say, I don't have time for the Bible. Yes, you do. You have time for everything you want to do. You know that. We have time for the things we want to do. We make that time. We prioritize those times. The Bible is greater than that last 20 minutes of sleep also. It is greater than that. Now, it might be hard in the beginning. I would give you that. If you need to wake up earlier, it will be hard that first couple of weeks. But guess what? As you begin to do it and practice it, that joy will be there. I promise it gets easier. Now, if you can do it some other time of the day on a regular basis, do that. I don't want to like draw a hard line. It has to be in the morning, although I think that's great for that. I think there's biblical support for that, especially in the Psalms. But read the Bible, men. It's in the Bible. We, we come and we look at God. And we understand who he is. I was reading Proverbs chapter 1 just the other day. In Proverbs 1, it, it tells us that through God's word, the Proverbs are written that we would have wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And why? So that we would then know how to fear God. Fearing God is the right knowledge of God that leads to the right living of God, responding to God. That only comes as we know the word of God more and more. I cannot encourage you enough, men, as you open your Bibles, you're going to know how to not only live yourself, you're going to know how to shepherd your wife, shepherd your family, you're going to know how to love your neighbors, you're going to know how to respond in difficult times. Knowing the Word, it's through the Word we're equipped for every good work. Men, you have everything you need. The Spirit of God is in you, and you have 
the Word of God. Know the Word. I cannot encourage you enough. Number two, persevere in the faith. If we're going to stand firm, we need to know the Word, and we need to persevere in the faith. In the last half of verse 1 in chapter 5, we read, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Men, we're not immune to temptation. We're kind of given a picture here of a guy who's been set free from prison, and, and now he wants to go back into his prison cell. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's, he's been free. Now he's, he's drifting back towards the shackles and wanting to put those on again. Men, we are not immune to temptation. What we see here is because of indwelling sin, we're tempted to forget about the grace that has saved us in Jesus and go back to slavery, meaning trusting in our works. I think the Christian life is sometimes portrayed as like a slide at a kid's playground. You just kind of get on and you just go, and it's like, wee! And like you just slide right into Jesus' arms and he just hugs you and it's like wonderful and it's great. And that would be cool if that was true. But it's not true. Um, now, the Christian life is full of joy. It's full of joy. We're told that the pleasures of God are at his right hand, and he holds that out to us. So there's immense amount of joy. But what does Paul primarily do when he talks about living as the Christian life? He'll talk about it's a race that we must run. Not a sprint, but a marathon. He talks about it's a battle. He says, fight the good fight. We're told to put on our spiritual warfare at the end of Galatians 6. What we see is that the Christian life is not a slide of just wheeze and like, how awesome is this? But it's a battle at times. It's a battle against the things of this world that want to bring us back into slavery that we would stand firm in the gospel. The way this happens is we often become tempted to think that we'll be better or more satisfied if we have more possessions or if we have a better relationship. We'll think we'll, we'll be happier if I have a better job, if I get that promotion. We'll think this will make life better. And if this is better, then, then I can do things better. And we put everything on our circumstances as if life depends on our circumstances versus life depending upon God in his grace through Jesus. Do you see how that happens? Like you say, I'll be happier if I buy this. I'll be happier if I get the, you know, the better job. Or I'll be happier if, man, this, my wife isn't making me happy. I think if I was to be in this relationship over here, now I would be happy. All lies. All lies. Everything about sin is about making you discontent with Jesus Christ and the things that you do have so you'd be again putting those shackles of slavery on, going back and trying to say, what will make me happy? What will make me happy? What will make much of me? So how do we persevere then? How do we stand firm? Well, number one, this is what I told you there's subpoints. Um, remember our gospel identity. We need to remember who we are because of the gospel. And, and this all comes from what Paul has done. Go back to chapter 4, verse 5. Paul told us that faith in Jesus, or by faith in Jesus, we've been adopted as sons of God. Remember that? We're now family with God. Verse 6, the Spirit of God dwells in us. What does he cry out? Abba, Father. Just think about that. If you're a believer, the Spirit is in you because you're a child of God, and the Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. 
That's what he's doing inside of us right now. Verse 7, we read that we are an heir through God. You know what it means to be an heir through God? It means that everything that God possesses is now ours. Hear that? Like, what does that not include? If we believe in a God who owns everything, spoke everything, holds everything, and he says, you're my son and an heir, and you possess everything in Christ, we have everything. We see that clearly in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 at the end of each letter where John writes and tells us what is given to those who um, persevere. Remember, we will sit with Jesus on his throne as he sits on the Father's throne. That's who we are as Christians. Remember our gospel identity. And so what happens when we remember our gospel identity and all of a sudden the lie comes and says, you'll be satisfied if you have this. I, I already have everything. Literally, I have everything. So now, whatever joy is promised here in sin, I'm fighting that with a much greater, more all-satisfying joy in Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome sin. We don't fight it just by willpower, but we fight it with a greater joy. Because sin always promises us joy, right? You'll be happier with a new wife. You'll be happier if you get a better job. You'll be happier if you have a promotion. You'll be happier if this, this, this. Why? Because it makes much of you. All of these are lies because in Christ you have everything. And when you know that, you're able to look through these deceptive lies and say they, don't guarantee, they, they can't give what they promise. And even the, the finite joys they have, well, they're finite, they're temporal. They're simply going to pass away. They don't last. Everything I have in Christ lasts for all of eternity. So number one, we must, we must remember our gospel identity. Um, number two, be in the Word. Have a plug back to the first one. Know the Word. And, and, and remember this. The Spirit's in you that you would know the Word. You, you get that, right? Like, he gives you the Spirit. It's through the knowledge of the, it's through the Spirit dwelling in you that you can now read the Bible and understand the Bible and live out the Bible. The Spirit is inclining you to live out the Bible. That's one of his primary works in you. So if you're saying, I don't have time for the Bible, I don't read the Bible, you're denying the work of the Spirit in you potentially, you might not actually know Christ. I'm not saying you don't, but you just go work that through. If, if you never want to read the Bible and be in the Bible, if that's what the Spirit's doing in you, then let there be conviction there. Maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe you're saying, well, I, I don't read the Bible. I'm only in the Bible, you know, once a week, once a month, or, you know, when I'm here on Sundays. Let that bring you to conviction and repentance now and confess that to God, that you would say, God, I'm not in the Bible. I'm not in the very thing that you're leading me to know. And ask forgiveness and begin reading. And remember, that's exactly what the Spirit's doing in you. So if you're repenting right now, that's grace. If, if you read the Bible, that's grace. That's what God's doing in you. Uh, number three, be with other believers. This is all underneath that, that second main point. Be with other believers. If we're going to stand firm and persevere, I need to know my gospel identity. I need to be in the Word. I need you. I need you pressing in on my life, calling me, saying, Nick, how are you doing? Men, we think that we are so autonomous. We're great at being independent, aren't we? 
I mean, just suck it up. We're men, right? It's kind of the message of the world. We're tough. And, and I admittedly, we can do a lot by ourselves, right? I mean, I, I can suck it up for a pretty long time um, and persevere. But I need you if I'm going to last. And I need you if I'm going to have joy. And we need to press in on one another that we remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel. And that we help one another see where maybe lies are starting to try to come in on us. And we encourage each other and we build one another up. We're, we've been starting small groups. We, we've been having more small groups. We need some more small group leaders. We'll be talking about that more throughout the summer. Uh, but if you're interested in that, come see me afterwards. Lastly, the last main application. Men, we need to protect our families and we protect the church. Protect our families and the church. Look at verse 29. He who was born according to his flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So, of course, this refers to Ishmael and Isaac, the son of the slave, or the slave son, and the free son. And what we see is the, the slave son persecutes the free son. And then read the last part of verse 29. So also it is now. Paul is saying that's not only something that happened thousands of years ago with Abraham and a little family squabble, but something that just happens within the world, slaves will always persecute the free. Those who, and what Paul is doing, he's, he's basically dividing all of humanity and saying those of the flesh who are, who are enslaved and unbelievers were those who have the Spirit and are free and are believers. That's how he's kind of dividing the line right here. You have your Ishmaels and your Isaacs. And the Ishmaels will always, always persecute the Isaacs. One evidence of that is in this century alone, more Christians have been killed than all other centuries combined. You know that, right? You should know that. More Christians have died in this last century than all other centuries combined. Christianity is not popular in the world. It's not supposed to be popular in the world because where is the heavenly Jerusalem? with Christ. Um, so how do we do this? So how do we protect our families and our churches? Number one, we remember that we are in the world but not of the world. Men, we need to know that truth. We need to embrace that truth. We need to live that truth. And we need to teach that truth. We are in the world, not of the world. And that's not just some little catchy little phrase. John 15, 19 says this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The reason you're not in the world is because God has grace and has chosen you out of the world because now you are God's and heir, possessor of everything. The world doesn't love you. We need to know that and stop trying to be friends with the world in every single way. This doesn't mean we're not good missionaries. It doesn't mean like we don't like uh, City Gates is going to go give out 700 pairs of shoes all good things that we do to love the world and we do to show the love of Jesus, but we're not to become like the world and compromise in who we are in the gospel to be like them. Now men, we need to know this because constantly we are being tempted to be molded into the world and your kids and your wife and your friends and everyone in here, we're constantly being bombarded with messages on the internet on YouTube, on Facebook, on TV, on the radio, and on billboards, and on tattoos. And you can just kind of keep going down. 
and all these things on what the world wants us to look like. And they're all lies. And we need shepherds. Your family needs a shepherd. And don't think that you're not qualified. You are in Jesus. You have the Spirit and you have the Word. You're fully and absolutely qualified to lead your family. So do not think that you're not qualified. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to keep reading the Bible and we can't keep growing in knowledge and wisdom, but you are qualified. You have everything you need. You know that, man. Know that. Know that. Let's teach our children it's okay to be different for godly reasons. That doesn't mean that we can't have unbelieving friends. It doesn't mean that when our, our friends eat without praying, we call them pagans and throw things at them. We don't throw. That would just be weird. We must be good missionaries. But we don't compromise on the truth of the gospel. The only way we know the truth of the gospel is if we know the truth of the gospel, which is through the word of God. And that's why, men, we need shepherds. We need leaders. We need men leading our families, praying for our families, demonstrating what it's like. <coughs> so we're in the world, not of the world. Second, we remove false teachers from our church and family. Shepherds have sheepdogs, which are meant to find the wolves. And we get rid of the wolves. Look at verse 30. Paul quotes Genesis 21. Again, goes right back to the Bible. That's what Paul keeps doing. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Throw the slave out. Now don't misinterpret. Paul's not saying we can't have unbelievers at, with us when we gather. He's not saying you can't go and eat and have barbecues with your unbelieving friends or any of those kind of things. But he is saying, look, these people who are coming in and infecting you with a false message, trying to get you to believe in that rather than Jesus, get rid of them and their message. Protect it. Now, it's not, we don't love them, but we are not going to allow that teaching within the church. And men, we do not allow that teaching in our households. And the only way we know false teaching is if we know the true teaching of the word. But no, your children, your wives... Your friends, they are listening to things every day. And some of the greatest dangers come with people with religious titles. So pretty much, my generic general term here, everyone on TV, don't listen to. Okay, I know there's probably a good one or two out there. For the most part, if they're on TV, they're pretty much a, a, a prosperity gospel teacher. For the most part. We must protect our families, and we must protect our churches, because we want to make sure we're growing in the gospel, because why? The gospel has set us free, and we're called to stand firm, but what we see is that there is a very real temptation for every one of us to go back into the prison. There's a very real temptation. We've been given victory over sin. We've been given power over sin through Jesus Christ, but we are still, we still struggle with the temptation of sin until Christ returns. We've been given everything we need to battle it, but we do have temptation. And if we're not trusting in Jesus, we're going to be slowly lured away. And it often takes place one compromise at a time. And they're often very little. 
very little compromises. But over time, they build up more and more. And soon, we've gone back into slavery. And we don't even know it. But remember the truth. We've, we've been set free. Know that. We've been set free by the gospel through Jesus Christ. Now, we are called to now stand firm. You have the Spirit. You have everything you need. So rejoice in that. I encourage you, rejoice in that truth. Men, lead your families into the Word of God. Rejoice in the gospel truth together. Let's pray as we, uh, as we celebrate this truth. Father, you're such a good God. You've given us everything that we need. You have not waited for us to prove ourselves, to qualify ourselves, but God, you have qualified in us qualified us through your son, Jesus Christ, by him going to the cross, dying on the cross, paying the debt for our sin, giving us his righteousness by grace so that when we stand before you, you see your son's righteousness and we are sons of yours forever. God, may we know that. May we know we're free. May we know that we're free and that all the pleasures that you have are given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to taste that. Help us to know that. Help us to embrace that. As men, help us to come alongside one another. As a church body, may we come alongside each other every week, encouraging each other, lifting each other up, that we would stand firm in the gospel. As we have more and more small groups formed, may we form for the purpose of growing in the gospel, growing in fellowship, and standing firm that we might continue to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Father, you have set us free. As we go out today, help us to embrace that. And may we not fall into temptation, the lies of this world, but may we live out the very freedom you have given us, and may we spur one another on in that freedom also. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.